Welcome to 2021, when your beard can be all it can be. How? By visiting the Fable Beard Company websites. As you know, they're the official beard company of the American History Podcast. And as this episode airs, it is now 2021. So, new year, new you. Get it started right by using one of their many amazing beard products to help soften your beard and hydrate it so it's the best beard you can possibly have. Now, when it comes to beard products, I'm a huge fan of beard oils and butters that are infused with CBD. I've used their roaster-scented CBD oil, which is fantastic, as is their latest one, the Baker. This particular oil is complete with a fantastic scent profile and the quality that only Fable Beard Company can deliver. Each bottle contains 50 milligrams of CO2-expressed full-spectrum CBD oil. Oh, and that scent profile? It's fresh-baked pastry, warm vanilla sugar, and just a hint of cinnamon spice. Believe me, gentlemen, the wife or the girlfriend is going to love it. Head over to FableBeardCompany.com and use the coupon code SEAN15 for 15% off the entire order. That's right, 15% off the entire order for listeners of this show. If CBD isn't your thing, then head over to FableBeardCo.com and check out all of their oils and butters, as well as beard conditioners and even products for women that don't have CBD in them. The coupon code works over there as well. Remember, it's SEAN15, the number 15, and let's start off the new year right. Now, on with the show. The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 26, Calvin Coolidge. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Welcome to the show. Now, today, we've got a great one for you, but before that, let me just say, if you're enjoying the show, and I truly hope you are, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating or even a review. It really does help people find the show. And we've had some reviews pop up lately, so let me give a shout-out to those listeners. First up is Christina7728. Thank you for the kind review, Christina, and I'm glad you're enjoying the show. We also had a five-star review from iCalamu, so thank you for that. I hope you catch up to where the show is currently at so um, you can hear the shout out. And last but definitely not least is Christy D. Assistant Super. I'm assuming that's Assistant Superintendent. Christy is about three quarters of the way through season two, so I'm sure by the time this is out, she's going to be up to speed. Thank you for the kind words, Christy. It really does mean a lot. And I do appreciate all of the positive feedback. Heck, even some of the negative feedback as well, if it's done with the right intentions. Let me encourage you to visit the website and sign up for my email updates. You can also see the sources used to create the current season. I've been trying to update the site more regularly, but honestly, this really is a one-man show here, except for the sound, which is done by my boy Chris, and I only have so many hours in each day. Now, if you want to support the show, there are several ways you can do so. First, sign up for the Patreon. For the price of one coffee a month, you'll get access to the bonus shows or episodes and the bonus series, 1983, the year the world almost ended scripts of each show, and you get the shows commercial-free. I have to say, the Patreon-only series, 1983, is fantastic, even if I'm saying that myself. We're just getting into the meat of that series, so this is the perfect time to sign up. You'll have somewhere between, oh, about eight hours, nine hours of content to consume that's unavailable anywhere else. Now, if you're not into Patreon, but you still want to support the show, you can do so by entering Amazon from our site every time you shop. Doing so will cause them to send us a few pennies, and it costs you absolutely nothing. Let me start that paragraph over again, Chris. If you aren't into Patreon but still want to support the show, 
You can do so by entering Amazon from our site every time you shop. Doing so will cause them to send us a few pennies, and it costs you absolutely nothing. Just click on one of the hyperlinked sources over at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. Even if you don't purchase the item, we still get some of the money. So thank you for that. Finally, you got a question or just want to interact with me? You can send me email at sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter. The handle is at American Hiscast. Um, now, I'm, we're also on both Instagram and Facebook. So if you want to see my ugly mug, just head over to the gram and say hello. All right. So today's episode is a special one as I've got our old friend Jerry from the Presidency's podcast back to talk about Calvin Coolidge, specifically the book of the same name written by Amity Schlaes. So here we go. All right. So today's episode is a special one as I've got our old friend Jerry from the Presidency's podcast back to talk about Calvin Coolidge, specifically the book of the same name written by Amity Schlaes. So welcome, Jerry. How's it going? Going well. How about you? Not too bad. I, I don't know if I can complain too much. Um, we were just talking earlier. It seems like 2020 is huh, refusing to give up the ghost, but I believe 2021, we're going to be better. It's, it's going to start right here, right now, today with this show. So um, without further ado, let me just ask, we're talking today about Amity Schley's book. Now, it's been out for a few years on Calvin Coolidge. Um, just for the listeners out there, if you want to go check it out. I highly recommend this book. It, it's really interesting. Um, but let me ask you, Jerry, what did you think of the book? Maybe kind of generally, and then maybe give us some specifics. Absolutely. So, you know, thank you for having me on, Sean, and, and thank you for inviting me to kind of revisit this book. I read it initially whenever it first came out. And so in preparation for this, I reread it. So it gave me a chance to kind of get a better sense of it, because when I was Initially reading it, I was in the midst of my presidential book reading project. So um, I've had more time to reflect upon it, more experiences with other biographies, with other um, presidential history. So it was interesting to come back to it. And one of the things that I really enjoyed with the first read as well as the reread is that it does move along pretty well. You know, there's some biographies and some history books that are a little more slow going than others but this one by and large it keeps you going and it keeps you interested also it does seem like there is kind of some overarching themes that carry through the book mm -hmm. and to me that's that's really fascinating it really reflects that that Chase, um really was thoughtful and intentional about this work um with that, you do get a sense that she's probably pretty aligned with Coolidge's political ideologies and political views. You get a little bit of that, but with that in mind, overall, it was a great read. And it was interesting because Coolidge is one of those presidents that people don't really know that much about. And sometimes he really does come across as pretty flat but in this she really took some time to bring his personality and his political viewpoints and and why he thought what he did and why he acted in his various offices as he did to really bring that to the forefront and help us as readers and as students of history to understand great yeah i totally agree um i i felt like it's definitely not a hit piece she's definitely um, 
I mean, first of all, she's scholastic so or, or scholarly, so you know she's not um, she's not going to do a hit job, obviously. And I, and I do think that that at least if she didn't go into the project being kind of pro Coolidge, I think she she came about to that kind of um, throughout her, her research and whatnot. I like what you said though about the themes. What were some of the themes that you thought she was she was kind of that we can see if we're going to read this book and maybe somebody out there is is going to read after we talk about it. So maybe this will help them out. What do you think were some of the themes that she was that she was trying to hit on? So one in particular and one that I think is key to understanding Coolidge is his idea of public service. And this idea of serving others and serving his communities, serving the nation, but it was within the context of his political ideology. Um, there was one quote in particular that I really think um, sums up Coolidge, and it was this idea of, and let me find it real quick, it is much more important to kill bad bills than to pass good ones. And you really get the sense of Coolidge that he he saw public service as this idea of not only and not just doing good things, but kind of this idea of maintaining and making sure that things didn't get too off kilter. It, it was very much he was all about achieving this kind of balance. Mm-hmm. Um in that he saw himself as virtuous. He saw that he was he was trying to do right, and he got frustrated when people didn't see that in him, that they didn't see that in his intentions. Um, but he, that was very much his intent. It was this maintaining a certain balance in what government does and what government doesn't do, what government should do and what government shouldn't do, in that he saw that as the ultimate of public service. Yeah, that's a great theme, and and it kind of leads, um, maybe I, not purposely because I really did not plan this to come out, but it's going to lead us into Herbert Hoover, and which I just recorded for people that are out there listening. I've just recorded the episode on Herbert Hoover and the Great Depression, which will come out after this one, and but that theme right there leads very nicely into Hoover. Where I think Hoover, as we're going to see, is really, and and FDR too, and maybe a lot of other presidents are trying to do things, um, but it's kind of like that whole, what's that saying? The best laid plans of mice and men, you know, often go astray. And I like how Coolidge is trying to just, you know, I just don't want to do anything wrong. And I think we're missing some of that where, and I'm just thinking off the top of my head, and this is going to get a little modern, um, you know, Bill's like, the the Patriot Act of 9-11 it meant to do well but as we've seen in the, the two decades since then uh, maybe it doesn't need to be what it was and and we maybe could use a kind of a Coolidge type guy who's saying you know what yeah I, I want to pass some good bills but I want to make sure I veto the bad ones maybe maybe a little Coolidge um, from time to time might not be too bad of an idea I, I love that so I love that theme that's a great one um so my next question is, was there anything that you found, I don't know, surprising as you were reading? You know, for me, um, it was really the quote on page 191 um, where Coolidge is talking about economics in 1920. Um, quote, it, it, 
isn't it strange that every period of social unrest, men have the notion that they can pass along, um, suspend the operations of economic laws, end quote. I think we're kind of um, touching on that idea of good bill and bad bill. But for me, that was, when I read that, I was like, wow, that, that's something that you don't really see um, or hear too much today. Absolutely. And, and again, that kind of gets back to this idea of Coolidge kind of Coolidge, the maintainer Coolidge, the, the balancer, he saw experimentation and especially with government or economy as being potentially dangerous. He, it, it, it really seems like, and and I think one thing that really comes out in the biography is that Coolidge was kind of forward thinking and, well, yes, this may achieve an immediate goal, but what does it mean five years down the road, 10 years down the road? What does it mean when we have another instance kind of like that? And if we have more instances like that, for me, it was really this idea, um, and I didn't really pick this up. Um, in my first reading, but I picked it up more with this reread, this idea and comparison of Coolidge to Wilson and that he, there, there were some commonalities, commonalities there. There were some um, parallels there between Wilson and Coolidge. And that was really fascinating to me because that's not a comparison that you typically think of. And uh, I, can't remember ever seeing that before, but yeah. that that is one that that really struck out to me, and it also speaks to that, yeah, because with the book, and and that was one thing that that Chase, uh, made clear is that at times Coolidge did partner with progressives. He did partner with more of this progressive ideal, but then he would have times that he wouldn't, and. Also, the fact that Coolidge struggled so much to make inroads, and you can kind of see parallels in that with Wilson. And with Wilson, you know, Coolidge wasn't necessarily someone who had been for decades. He was somebody who was more of an outsider, and they sometimes treated him like that. Uh, there was one part where they were talking about uh, during the vice presidency that folks in Washington society kind of saw, you know, kind of looking their noses down at the Coolidge's. And um, the quote was something like uh, they were mistaking federalism for provincialism. And, and that really gets to, you know, is this outside view and seeing that the way things had been run in Washington wasn't working mm -hmm. and trying to provide a, a new way forward. And again, we don't really think of Coolidge in this respect, but I did like that 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 comparison was made. And there is something to that. And it is a fascinating idea to consider with Coolidge. I love that you picked up on the federalism thing. Um because, I mean, as a, and I think there's another question, so I don't want to touch too much on that yet, um, about, you know, his, him as governor. 
and maybe kind of comparing his governorship to his presidency, which I think are, are differences. There's some major differences there. Um, but I love that you picked up on the federalism. I think federalism is very important, and a lot of people don't get it. Um, and we're going to have listeners, obviously, that are listening overseas who don't really understand the idea of federalism versus nationalism. And he's very much as a president, a federal president. He really sees that it's just, you know, if, if it doesn't say I can do it, then I can't. And that's up to you guys to fix. And, and you know, where I can help, I will. But I'm not going to break the rules, um, even if it's good in order to do it. And, and that's, an, that's something that's lost. And, and even when I've taught government, and it's been a while since I've taught government in this, the public school system, um, but even when I did 10 years ago, um, kids had a hard time understanding federalism. And they just didn't understand, well, why can't the president just do what he wants? Well, you know, there's this weird document called the Constitution, and there's rules, and um, nobody really pays attention to it unless they're the ones out of power. Then suddenly they discover it, and when they're in power, they don't care, all that stuff. But um, I, I, I'm just so fascinated with that aspect of Coolidge. He seems, and I think I've got a question coming up where we're going to talk about it, but he seems almost in a way of, um, and actually it's the next one. Oh, no, it's two down. Um, he seems like a man out of his time. So maybe I'll bring that one up first. Um, and I don't know if this is really a question, but it's something that I was struck by in the introduction, um, specifically towards the end. She talks about how um, maybe some of his obscureness or his obscurity is due to the fact that he kind of spoke a language that we don't really use anymore. Um, you know, he said instead of money supply, he said credit. Um, he talked about um, uh, instead of federal government, you know, national government. Um, he said thrift. An econ or economy um, instead of savings. And so I'm just wondering, and this is kind of a, a, I guess my question is, you know, does she have a point? Is that part of his obscurity? Is just his, his odd manner of speaking? Or maybe is he just kind of like that man out of, out of his time? I don't know. What, what, what do you think? Well, and I think that, that there is a point to be made about that. Um, with Coolidge, and I think that's part of why people have a hard time kind of understanding Coolidge, is the language he spoke was different. The, his political ideology, we don't really see that much of anymore. Not in this, in, in the way he saw it. Mm -hmm. I think that like with many presidents, people look back on him and they'll draw out things. Oh, well, Coolidge did this. That's just like what we're going through now. And, and it isn't really. He mm -hmm. really was a product of his time. One of the ways that Schley's, uh really brings that home is this idea of the radio. That the radio was almost the perfect instrument and it came about, it was becoming popular at the time that Coolidge became president mm -hmm. and, and it was the perfect medium for him. He wasn't, he wasn't necessarily the best public speaker. He, in, in the descriptions of him, he seems rather plain, not really that big of a personality. But in the intimacy of just audio and him in a microphone, it comes across 
much better. Yeah. And his message is clearer when you're not considering everything else. And so for, for Coolidge, that was the perfect medium for him. And then, and it was such a short time that, that radio was really that type of a medium in, yeah. in the grand scheme of things. But for Coolidge, that worked. And likewise with his ideas, um, one of the things that, that this biography really emphasized and, and I took away from is how different Coolidge was, even from other Republicans, you know, thinking about Harding before him and Hoover after him. Coolidge's ideology is not either of those. And, yeah. and he, he struggled with that. You know, we, we see that in the biography that he struggled with his time as vice president, having to kind of toe the party line for Harding. And then when he finally got his chance trying to say, oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like Harding, but let's try something else. Let's mm -hmm. let's do things a little differently. And then. That was of his mindset. He very much was a person of his time, and I think that's a struggle for us in, in trying to understand him and trying to understand his political viewpoints because it is so – and even in, his, even in his own time, I think that he was unique. I think that, that some folks struggle to understand him. But he also had this kind of plain spoken way and he was a man of conviction and, and that comes across, you know, whether you agreed with him or not, you understood that he meant what he said. Definitely. Which is, is odd for politicians. I mean, I, I don't, I can't think of really too many. Actually, I, I may be only one that I think, um, that reminds me it's, it, it could almost be Coolidge reborn would be somebody like Ron Paul, maybe, um, who just seems kind of a man out of his time, but he just, he's just, he's just who he is and this is who I am. Um, but I, I, I really like that idea of touching that you touched on with the medium of radio. One of the things I think Calvin Coolidge was very good at is coming up with a pithy comment it, or at least some of these maybe I thought but I, I love that one that supposedly a woman told him, you know, I'm going to make you say more than three words. And he said, you lose. Um, you know, whether or not that's a, a real quote or not, it's, it's great. And it really shows you, you know, and, and not only was he good at it, but that really works on a radio medium where it's just you and the mic. And, 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 and I've said this before, you know, podcasting, it's kind of like that. And it's harder than you think, you know, um, when you just listen to a podcast, you're like, oh, okay, you know, you just turn on the, and, and you record, I mean. Come on, Warswick, what's so proud? You've been teaching 20 years, you know, what's so difficult about it? Well, you you don't get kind of that interaction mm -hmm. that, like, people think that they're going to get stage fright. And I used to be really shy as a kid. Um, but when I started teaching, it was like an adrenaline rush. And, and you get addicted to it. And then you start doing this. And it's really difficult because there's no feedback. There's no... You can't see faces. If you you feel like if you tell a joke, is it going to go well or not? And um, so I, I admire Calvin Coolidge for being able to really early on take that medium and make it kind of his own. 
you know that that's that's pretty awesome um and he reminds me in a weird way also coming of age right as radio is coming of age almost kind of like a barack obama and the internet and i remember i was it the 28 or 2012 when they actually had questions coming in from youtube or something and it did debate and i was just like what is this garbage youtube what are you talking about what what the heck's a youtube and now <laughs> youtube is so big you know um it's 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 crazy so a lot of times i was struck by those those strange little parallels i don't want to say that they're too much but just a few things every now and then that you're like hmm that's kind of interesting so absolutely and I, and i think that's one thing that that you know modern audiences you know 2020 2021 now um i I think that we can understand about this time is that there was so much changing so fast and you really get that in this biography that that here you've got this kind of plain spoken new england man in the midst of this changing world and and you wonder, you know, did he feel overwhelmed at times? Did he feel like a, a, a man out of time? Um, but you also get the sense that it, he kind of persevered. He was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to continue to serve. And, and I think that that is something that we can connect with. Yes. Yeah. Idea, you know, that, that circumstances, maybe maybe larger circumstances and the world is changing around us but being true to our convictions being true to ourselves trying to do right by others and trying to serve i think that that's an example that we can take from this and can understand that's a great point and and it it even melts away my cynicism which is usually really difficult to melt through but i I mean (laughs) And I think it's just uh, I, I, my students always laugh and I just tell them, you know, it's it's when you read enough history, you just become really cynical. Um, and the more I think you read, the darker and more cynical you become. Um, but even Calvin Coolidge kind of melted through that. And I do think that it's really kind of the point taken that, you know, you can be a person of convictions and, you know, just try to do your best and not sell yourself out, um, which is a great thing to hear. Uh, in these dark days that we're listening to. So let's look at, so what do we think is um, Amity's argument with this book here? I think that our argument is about this idea of, this idea of, of trying to achieve this balance of, you know, uh, trying to make sure that government doesn't necessarily do too much that it's responsible, that it's it's something that that can be of benefit to folks, but maybe we need to think beyond the traditional ideas of what government is and what government does to figure out, yeah, I, I was really interested in this idea of the melon plan and and this um, kind of scientific budgeting um, and and I think that's a that's one thing that she really gets to is that 
just not accepting the status quo as well because we've always done this let's keep on doing it but at the same time you know don't experiment just for the sake of experimenting or just to meet one crisis or or one um condition one thing that's going on right now to to solve one problem because it may create more um almost an idea of just trying to be wiser about how government works um but also that in this there's going to be struggles and even if you kind of maintain that balance for a few years you know case in point with coolidge that you know when he was president he was able to try to get things balanced try to get things to that point where he felt the things were good but then quickly it went imbalanced again and especially when he didn't have that direct influence anymore mm-hmm. so uh, to me that that was kind of something that ran through this and and ran through this book and th- and then just also this idea of coolidge this idea of coolidge as um this public servant that just was trying to do well he wasn't necessarily fancy he wasn't necessarily um the biggest personality in the room but this idea of stick to of of persistence and patience and the virtue of that yeah, that that's that's basically what I got. I I really like that that stick to itness. I think uh, an idea of balance. Um, the lessons that we can learn kind of are her arguments that you know we've got stuff that we can learn from this guy. Um, whether it is you know public service, um, but a balance to things, uh, maybe thriftiness and economy to use his words. Um, you know, and and not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, so to speak, uh, I think you even touched on that, the idea of, you know, experimentation is okay, but, you know, let's not just experiment just for experiment's sake, um, mm-hmm. cause you are playing at that level, you're playing with people's lives and jobs and, um, it's, it's kind of dangerous. Um, so let's see. Um, another thing that I thought was interesting, um, basically was the idea that, you know, um, talking about lessons was that, you know, he learned kind of, or maybe the lesson that he learned from Washington and the fact that um, the rise of partisanship kind of stung him, but he gets this lesson of maybe turnover's good um, and kind of fights corruption. And, and I bring that one up, obviously, for current modern reasons. Um, but then he gets from Jackson of all, like, who would think uh, something from Andrew Jackson, uh, but his flamboyant legacy was, you know, that perhaps it's not all that good um this flamboyant legacy of andrew jackson and i mean honestly here i'm i'm couldn't help but be struck by this and just think trump um and i hate bringing things too modern um because i think you know you need at least 10 years or so to kind of cool off and and let things simmer and and think about them but i mean i really the when i was thinking that and putting you know some thoughts on paper for this this show the first thing that I thought of was just, wow, Trump. 
Yeah, so... And that's the thing, like... I think that we... In the history of the American presidency, whoever is in the office, whoever comes to the office, it's not just that they're the president. They're also dealing with the legacies of everyone before them. And that in certain times, that's a larger struggle than others. I think in terms of the modern context and the presidency that just was, I think that maybe it wasn't so much the president, the person holding the office that was thinking of the legacy and thinking of the history of the American presidency so much as the nation, so much as the citizens were thinking about, well, here we have somebody who there are correlations to other presidents, but then there's also some pretty unique factors and I, I won't go down that road too much but it also helped us to kind of think about well what do we want in a president and again like we have these these trends in presidential history it seems that that sometimes we have more of the the political insiders we have more of the people who are from washington um you know you see a time JFK, LBJ, Nixon, Ford, um, all these folks who had long histories in Washington. But then you start to see other trends, you know, immediately after that, you have Carter, Reagan, um, Bush was a little bit of an aberration, but then um, Clinton and then H or, or W. Bush, where we have kind of the the outsiders, you know, mm -hmm. people from outside of Washington. And, and that's nothing new. You know, we've had that before. We've had those trends before in the presidency. But to me, and that's one of the, it, it can be a strength of the American presidency is that every four years we get to ask the question again, what do we want from the presidency? What do we want in a president? How do we want things to move forward? And I think it, it behooves anybody who ascends to that office to really consider the legacy that they're stepping into. Because not just for examples of what to do or what not to do, but then also an understanding of trends and patterns and history and legacies that they may have to deal with that they didn't necessarily have anything to do with something that's been done before something that happened in the past um case in point you know we're still dealing with ideas of social justice and that goes back even beyond the very beginning of the presidency but the legacy of the presidency is tied into that. Mm -hmm. That is tied into, and it's a, it's a common point in the story of presidential history. And the current president, just like the predecessors, have to deal with that. And I think in understanding that legacy and understanding how 
how it played a role and how it was a part of the legacy of the presidency is key to dealing with it in the present and moving forward into the future. I think that that's, it's a wise thing to do to look back at our past, not necessarily be stuck in the past and not necessarily feel overwhelmed by the past, but to know our past and to move forward from our past, use that as a point of strength, um, to have that knowledge to know what's going on, why things are as they are so that we can move forward. Exactly. Great. Uh, you basically hit what I was kind of thinking myself. Um, so since we're discussing interesting points, um, well, I kind of already asked you that. Let's, let's move on to this one. Um, everyone knows, um, Coolidge became president, or at least listeners should hopefully know this by this point, when Warren G. Harding dies. Um, how did, so I had mentioned it earlier, how did he govern as a president compared to how did he govern as a governor? Well, again, I think that comes back to this idea of federalism in, as Coolidge saw it. Mm-hmm. He he very much had this idea that you know certain certain powers and certain responsibilities were at the state level and should be at the state level. And so I think that in and of that, you know, the this understanding of the powers of the states versus the power and, and responsibilities of the federal government, I think that to start with is a place where he approached these two offices differently. But then also this idea of the insider versus the outsider. So with Massachusetts, he was well familiar with the government in Massachusetts. You know, he he had been involved in the, the state Senate. He had been the state Senate president. He had served as lieutenant governor. He had been involved in Massachusetts politics for a long time. So he kind of knew the movers and shakers. He knew the rhythms of the politics in the state versus when he went to the federal level. And so he started as vice president. And that is one thing that's captured in the biography is that it, it was it was a learning curve. You know, he he had to learn a new way of doing things. He had to learn as the vice president in his role as president of the Senate, well, what does that mean? What do I do? This is different from his role as Senate president in Massachusetts. And so I think just it, it took him a while to really get comfortable in that setting. And, and arguably did he ever become truly comfortable in the setting of DC, like he did in Boston, like he did in Massachusetts. I think that there were some common themes that we see, you know, this idea and, and, and it's a, a constant in his, in his political career, this idea of fiscal responsibility and trying to, to keep that balance. But I think just inherently 
these two different environments and in his mind, two different roles, I think that changed how he approached each. Mm -hmm. I couldn't, I couldn't have really said it any better. Um, so now, now we're basically talking about his presidency, um, which was, you know, about six, five, six years of there in the 1920s. Um, what do historians generally, cause this is now, this is where I'm totally out of my ballpark. I'm not, I don't really do much presidential history, um, truth be told, um, and so I'm I'm definitely off the reservation here. That's what that's why I got you here for, to to help me out. Um, but what do historians generally think of Coolidge, and what do we think of him after reading Schley's book? So. I actually, uh, before we got on the call, I looked up um, the presidential rankings to just get a sense. I, I pretty much knew, but wanted to verify. So typically in presidential rankings in the last 20, 30 years, Coolidge has been in the middle and going more kind of towards the bottom. So kind of averaging somewhere between 23rd and 36th, usually around like 31, 32 and um, in the 2018 Siena poll, uh, he was actually 31st. Okay. So with historians and that's one thing that's kind of been examined over the decades, you know, what was the role of Coolidge and the Coolidge presidency in what became the great depression and the, the causes of that. It's interesting because it seems like in the last 10, 15 years, opinions of him have been getting a little better. You know, he's definitely far from, you know, a, a meteoric rise to the top, but it seems like the opinions have gotten a little more favorable. And in part, that could be because of new scholarship into him. That could be because of, of, work like Schley's and um, other historians who have come out with biographies and examinations of Coolidge since. But by and large, it seems like it seems like he's an I don't want to say necessarily say underappreciated, but maybe maybe that is the the term that I want to use underappreciated president. And I think in part it's it, it it can be hard to get your head wrapped around Coolidge. You know, who who was he? What was his motivation? What was what was his goal? And I think in part it's because we it, his viewpoints, his his political ideology, his aims are so different from what we typically see, you know, even in that time, but in the modern context. But that should we necessarily hold that against him now? And, and one of the points that he's received a good amount of criticism for, and, and I think it's arguable criticism in trying to think of what the federal government should be, is with the Mississippi River flood, you mm -hmm. know, the great flood of 27. And, and that's covered in some detail in this biography. Basically, 
Coolidge didn't see that the federal government should get directly involved. The federal government could assist efforts from the International Red Cross, other agencies. Coolidge himself donated to these efforts as, as an individual, as a private citizen. But he didn't really see that the federal government should be in the role of you know, what we think of as FEMA nowadays. Mm-hmm. Now, what was interesting about this is that commentators at the time and, and critics of him and of this policy, they were like, well, you know, it's just because he doesn't care about people in the South and the West. If this was happening in Vermont, the federal government would be boots on the ground. Everything would, they'd have everything they needed. And so then, you know, shortly thereafter, Vermont suffers a major catastrophic flood emergency. And Coolidge says no. He said, you know what? I, I love Vermont. Uh, I, I know the state intimately uh you know that's my roots but if i said that the federal government shouldn't be involved in this instance then the federal government shouldn't be involved in that instance and so it was kind of the same approach to the situation in vermont as it was in the mississippi river valley and yes there is room for criticism you know you know was it was it kind of was it heartless was it cruel to not use resources to help individuals who were desperately in need and and so many people lost their lives and livelihoods in both of these instances but also I, i think there is something to be said about him being consistent in that and going back to this idea of federalism and and he really did step into this role as the president of the United States and not just the president from New England you know he he was very much focused on the good of the nation in that role um and, and i think that is something to that that needs to be in the equation when we consider his his ultimate legacy because we have presidents that haven't been yeah. that consistent so yeah there you know there's definitely i mean you can't fault the guy for consistency um you know um there's no doubt that um when it came to to principles and whatnot he was consistent throughout and he didn't flip flop. I, I to use a, one of our more modern political terms. Uh, he didn't change with the way the wind blows. Uh, he didn't favor anybody. He just said, "Look, these are the rules, and I have to live by them, and that's what I'm going to do." And and I think that. And now I'm not like I've said. I'm not really a presidential historian, but um, if I was going to look at presidential history and I was going to rank them, I'd be ranking them based on you know the oath of office and and how well did they follow that oath of office that would be my tool and i have to say that that i would have him pretty high up there i don't know that i'd have him number one um but i think he'd be top 10 you know 
I think people would be shocked at, at some of the people that I would have down at the bottom. Um, probably the ones that are at the top of most people's would be at my bottom just because of that. Because I think a lot of those rankings are, you know, if you did something. But I think Coolidge is saying, it doesn't matter if I can do something. Yeah, I could. There's a lot of things I could do. But what am I allowed to do? And that gets back to, I, I think, our theme for this whole whole discussion today is going to be federalism. Um, and who would have thought that? I, If you would have told me that you know, an hour ago, we're going to have a, a theme and it's going to be federalism. I would have been shocked, <laughs> but what the heck it's 2021 and you know, it's keeping us on our toes, I guess. Um, so, well, and, and I really think that, um, you know, it, it, I, I think you make a key point there because one of the things that I try to consider whenever I'm, you know, with people who are interested in presidential history, we all kind of have our own list, and the list can vary. It can depend on on what your, you know, what factor of the presidency you're looking at. But one of the things, and and especially, I think one of the key things to consider when kind of ranking presidents is what were their aims, what were their goals, and again, that's one thing that's. It, it's harder to get your head wrapped around Coolidge because one of his goals was to basically do as little as possible to really do more of that, to do more of that work. That's not as glamorous. Okay. Let's look at this, this budget. Let's figure out what we can cut. Let's figure out where we should spend more or, or especially with Coolidge, let's figure out where we should cut. Um, but in that, was he successful? You know, there's so many presidents who go in with grandiose schemes and, you know, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and they don't really do any of that. If you ask Coolidge when he was leaving the office, well, did you achieve your goals? I think he would have said yes. I think he would have he would have said, you know, were there things that he could have done better, of course. But by and large, in terms of what he aimed to do with the presidency, I think he did that. And it was a less than common tact that people bring to the presidency. But I think that that's also, you know, if if you if he can be considered kind of underappreciated i think that that has kind of been left out of the equation that you know he he kind of set this this goal that you know maybe we don't really understand but i think he achieved what he overall what he wanted to do and i think he stayed true to what he thought the office was and and to your point you know taking that oath of office, I think to him it was, you, you You get a sense that he took it very seriously and thought about it and every day focused on trying to be true to that oath. Yeah, I, I you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about the last few presidents that we've had. I mean, I, I would be really interested, and people might be shocked that I would say it, but I'd be interested to sit down with Trump and ask him, you know, did you achieve like, I'm not going to report it. This is just you and I, you know, Don here. We're, we're hitting a couple beers here and, 
you know, are you really satisfied with what you do, what you achieved? Um, and I'd like to do that with, you know, Obama and George W. Bush and um, I think even Bill Clinton. And I suspect, um, I suspect, and I might be wrong, but I suspect that most of them would say no if they were being honest and they knew this isn't going to be recorded. I'm not going to put this on my podcast. Doesn't matter. There's only like five people listening anyway, so don't worry about it, Don. Just, just tell me the truth, you know. How many people, uh, nobody's going to listen, but did you achieve it? Um, I think most, if not all, would say probably the answer is no. Um, and I think Coolidge would, and I think you're right, would probably say yes. And I think, I, and, and I think, and I think with Coolidge, like his, his biggest disappointment in leaving office and, and to your point, I think that there are many presidents that leave office and, oh, well, I wish I would have been able to do more. I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have been able to get around to that. I think in terms of what he did, he was proud of that and, and proud of what he left. His biggest struggle was his successor and knowing that he wasn't being succeeded by someone of the same mindset, somebody that was going to continue the path that he set yeah. he knew that he knew that there were there were potential problems ahead in many respects and i think that was his biggest disappointment was that even though he obviously felt because you know there there was this push for him to run for another term and all he had to do was say okay he didn't he resisted that at every angle. He could have continued on. He knew that it was important that he didn't, but he was also disappointed in knowing that his work was going to be altered, that it was going to be. Yeah. But also, I think that's, again, part of Coolidge is that he recognized that you can't hold on to power forever and, and you shouldn't. At some point, somebody else has to come in and take the oath and interpret it and interpret what the presidency is and what the presidency does in their own way. Yeah. There's a great quote by him on Herbert Hoover that I just had on today's episode that I recorded earlier where he's talking to um, Coolidge is talking about Hoover and he says something to the extent of that man is wouldn't shut up for six years with, you know, giving me advice and all of it was bad or something. It's just, it's a perfect, I wish I could remember it perfectly because it's the perfect Calvin Coolidge, you know, I mean, he's just a, he's so great with those zingers. Um, you know, he's given me advice for six years and all of it was bad. <laughs> um, so what do we think about him? Could he, could we see somebody today being president as Coolidge? I, I think, I think we've pretty much um, kind of come to the, the conclusion that, you know, probably not. Um, I mean, with with modern, I think, you know, the 24-hour news cycle, um, the internet, you know, social media, um, obviously, you know, it, it's, it's a great way to reach out to people. And he was, I want to be careful because I think he was more... Um, savvy than than sometimes we give him credit for um especially when it came to radio but could we see a you know could could we resurrect count in coolidge we got our magic wand here we're gonna wave it you know or we got our infinity stone or whatever and we're gonna snap our finger and we're gonna bring cal and coolidge back to life to steal from the mcu and we're gonna make him president tomorrow 
Um, would it work? Could he? Could could he do it? I don't know that we could. And, and again, saying never is always a dangerous <laughs> proposition. Yeah, what's that? That, that um, James movie, Never Say Never. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I, I think in the current political context, I think it would be quite improbable that there could be another candidate like Coolidge because, and especially thinking of kind of running for president, that process and, and what we expect in terms of national politics isn't what Coolidge delivered. Coolidge, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do this. And oh, by the way, I'm going to cut the budget and I'm going to cut this program. That's not something that voters are going to be like, yay, let's get behind. Um, voters and, and the public at large, we tend to want, well, well, what are you going to do? What, what new things, what new programs, what new initiatives, how are you going to shift government? That being said, and, and I think that, that you hit on something there, that he really was more politically savvy than I think sometimes people give him credit for, both in terms of garnering public opinion and getting the public behind his ideas. But then also, and you do get this point where you, you start to see that He's gotten more comfortable with Washington and understanding the movers and shakers, understanding who's going to act, how. I think one of the strengths of Coolidge was that he observed, he learned, he sought knowledge, he sought understanding, he sought to figure out how things worked. And once he did, he may not be able to make it work all the time, but he had a better sense of what may fly, what may not, what, how he could actually get things done in a way that, yeah, and, and to use the, the Wilson analogy. So, you know, Wilson tried. He, he did have times that he was able to pull public opinion to his benefit. He had times that he was able to move legislation through Congress, but with the Versailles Treaty and the League of Nations, you know, that yeah. was that was his big ass. That was what he wanted to be his legacy. And he wasn't able to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. He was no versus London Johnson. Exactly. He he, he wasn't able to and, and the, there's a lot. The that, Wilson treatment was not the Johnson treatment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's a lot that I could say about Lyndon Johnson. I'm not a fan because of the Vietnam War, but I will give him credit. He understood Congress and he understood how to get it behind, um, even in his own party, which people tend to forget is very fractious. Um, I, I see a lot of even today, you know, a lot of talk about and rightfully so the earthquakes going on within the Republican Party. But you know, there, there's a um, there's there's some forces in the other side as well that are that are, you know, rambunctious, so to say. Um, and Johnson was able to, to 
patch that together and get what he wanted done, whether or not you agree with it, that's a different story. Um, I think you could say the same for Nixon um, to, to some greater extent, especially foreign policy. Um, you can look at Reagan, um, understood how to, to play the game. To, Tip O'Neill hated his guts, and yet um, <laughs> they, they worked together. Um, and I think Calvin really learned how to kind of start to play that game. And amazingly, Wilson kind of towards the end lost that ability, um, that, that politique way of, of being able to smooth over ruffled feathers and, and move that legislation through. Um, so, you know, who knows, you've given me something to think about. I, I was, I was definitely on the side of no, but now I'm starting, you know, I think one of the things with Calvin Coolidge is that he's smarter than we give him credit for. You know, he, he was not a dumb man. Um, no. I, I, and I've said that about, I've said that about Nixon. I, I think Nixon was extremely intelligent. Um, a little paranoid, probably too much for his own good. Um, but really smart man. And, and, and I don't say that about too many politicians, but I think Calvin Coolidge, um, he was, he was, he was pretty sharp, you know, he was no dummy. And so, you know, who knows, maybe he could now, now, now I'm, that's, that's some food for thought. I'm gonna have to rethink my position. So thank you. Um, so our last question, because I just saw the time. We're almost at an hour. How did that happen? Um, I, I guess it's just great conversation. Um, what what do we think of the book itself? You know, is it good? Is it bad? What what are some strengths and weaknesses? If somebody's out there, you know, they're like, hmm, maybe I want to buy this book. What are and of course they're going to go to the website and get it through our link. That way, um, it helps keep the lights on around here. Hint, hint, subtle, not so subtle hint. Um, subliminal messaging there. Um, but what, what do we think are some of the strengths and weaknesses of this book? Well, I think that the strengths are that this getting to kind of Coolidge's personality and understanding kind of how his history and, and how his upbringing, how that stayed with him and, and how it influenced who he became, the the political ideologies that he developed, his approach to things. I, I think that that's a very big strength here because, again, Coolidge is one of those presidents that I just I, I don't think is well understood, and is and, and even in his time, I think he he was dismissed and folks would often find to their detriment that he would end up on the winning side after they had dismissed him and, and said, Oh, well, you know, he's, he's not a good politician. He'll never get this through. He would end up on the winning side. <laughs> so I, I think that, I think that there is, that's a strength. You, you really get a better sense of Coolidge as an individual and as an, atypical leader you know it's it's not a, a what what folks may necessarily at, at first thought conceive of as a leadership style but he had this this quiet leadership to be able to get things through to be able to get things done i think the for me the weakness is and and it's something that I try to recognize in books because as much as we may try at times to be unbiased, we're all humans. We all have a viewpoint. We all have 
some way of looking at things that you know we we can change and grow out of but that's just where we're at right now so i think it's important to when reading this think that schleys is I won't necessarily say like overt, but you get a sense that she is pro Coolidge, that that she is in support of him, or or is kind of aligned with his his ideologies or viewpoints or whatever. You you get the sense that there is this um, this pro Coolidge to her approach, and so I think it's important to kind of counter that. Well, what? What would somebody else say to this? Mm-hmm. How would somebody else view this? That said, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to read something so long as you understand kind of where they're coming from yeah. and can take that into consideration and apply some critical thinking to it. Okay, well, is this really what's going on? Is there another way that we could look at this? But by and large, this is a biography that I would recommend for folks who are wanting to know more about Coolidge and wanting to understand him a little better. I I think that this, I think in terms of doing that, it it is a successful biography. Yeah, I I agree. I think she definitely has a point of view if she didn't come in beforehand with it. um, I think, you know, going through her research and stuff, because it's a very well-researched book, I think she became somewhat of a fan at the very least. I think most biographers are fans, if I'm honest. Um, you know, I'm not going to write uh, a history of necessarily of Lyndon Johnson unless I'm a fan or I'm not a fan. Like, I might do one, I hate to say it as a hit piece, but, you know, if I'm going to write a, a, a Lyndon Johnson biography, you know, you know I'm going to come at it at him for the Vietnam War. Like, that. Like that. I'm not going to let that one go. Um, so I think when you see biographies, it tends to be one or the other. Um, and I think she did a pretty good job, all things considered. I think it's it's also kind of difficult to be a fan of Calvin Coolidge. Um, just because you're going to go against that, that sort of master narrative that, you know, he wasn't very good. I mean, we've got the historical rankings. Dude's always down around 30 or so. Out of, what are we at, 46 now? I mean, whew, you know. He's not the worst, um, you know. He's not Buchanan, but um, he's pretty close. So it it does maybe add a little bit of a corrective. But I do agree. Whenever you're reading a biography, you should always be aware of that we're all human, um, and whether it's a podcast or a biography, we we've all got a little bit of a bias. And um, I try to put my bias out there. I I'm coming away with this. I I'm much more of a fan than I than I had expected to be. Um, when I started and I'm going to have to reread this at some point because it's, I think it's, it's a pretty well written book, which is an endorsement in and of itself. As I think we both can attest to historians, we're not the best, um, writers sometimes. (laughs) And, um, sometimes, uh, it gets a little slow, I guess is the, the, the nice way of saying it where you're like, dude, just get on with it. Um, I think I'm guilty of that myself. Um, so, you know, it, we, it is, we a, don't well, need 30 pages of the fiscal policy. <laughs> no, 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 no. And, and I might've, I might've burned a little bit through that faster than, than I would have normally uh, done. If I'm, if I'm honest, um, there were parts of, of the book. I will say that I did a little bit of the grad school kind of 
Um, might might burn through this a little bit more, but overall, it is a, it is I think a really strong biography, and I think it provides I, I might have already said it a, a very necessary um, corrective, and kind of brings back this lost almost figure, is which is weird to say, right? He he was a president. How do we how do we view him as as this lost figure? But I don't think we talk a lot about Calvin Coolidge. And as somebody, you know, I taught history in the schools for 15, 20 years now. And, um, he's definitely one that you kind of brush over because you're usually talking a lot about Wilson. And then you're talking a lot about FDR and Hoover. And I think Harding and Coolidge, if, I, if, if we're honest, we use that as a time to pick up some speed and kind of fly through them so we can spend more or because we're behind. <laughs> right. And we're like, OK, that. Wilson went a little too long, so let's brush through these guys because we know we're going to go long in FDR in World War II. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's definitely a book that's worth picking up um, for the listeners out there. If you're if you're into history or into presidential history, um, check it out, guys. So, wow, Jerry, I've kept you on for about almost an hour and ten minutes. So, and it's Super Bowl Sunday. We've got wings to pick up and stuff to do, and um, I'm going to let you get back to doing your stuff and I'm going to do whatever it is that I do when I'm not doing history, which I don't really know that there's much that I do when I'm not doing history, sadly. Um, so, uh, but thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, we got to do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on Sean and thank you to your listeners for listening. Um, I hope if you don't already that you'll check out the presidencies of the United States. Um, I'm available on, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, the website is presidencies.blueberry. That's B L U B R R Y.com. And you can connect me all those ways on there. Um, you can find all the ways that you can follow the show. And um, I, I very much understand that idea of, you know, needing to have that, you know, either love them or hate them kind of idea to to keep on with things um i'm not really sure where i'm at with jefferson right now um what which side i fall on um but after 20 something episodes and i'm still just starting the second term i i've, I've got a ways to figure that out <laughs> good, good. and it's a great show listeners check it out because um and you did some special ones last year on on elections and man, there was, was it, was it the, the 68 convention? Um, oh, yes. was absolutely fantastic. If I could give it 10 stars on a scale of one to five, I would. Um, the FDR one was also fantastic. Um, there's some great modern, I become a big fan of, of, of modern U S history, much more than, than ever before. And I think grad school just destroyed my love of 19th century, um, U S history. And I really 20th century stuff is my bag now. Um, so check it out guys, but Jefferson, the episodes are really good. You're really going to enjoy it and I can't recommend it enough. So thanks again, Jerry, and we'll catch you later. Thank you so much. Do you like the sound of the American history podcast? My audio production is provided by the mad octopus. Check them out over at mad 